Welcome to Chasing Dramas. This is the podcast that discusses Chinese culture and history through historical Chinese dramas. We're your hosts, Kathy and Karen. Today, we are discussing the drama Hulli Huating or Royal Nirvana. The podcast is in English with proper nouns and certain Chinese phrases spoken in Mandarin Chinese. If you're new to the podcast, please do check out our website, ChasingDramas.com, and feel free to reach out to us on Twitter or Instagram at ChasingDramas. If you like what you hear in this podcast, please do us a favor and leave us a rating on whatever platform you listen to us to. This is the fourth in a four-part series for the drama, and today we will discuss the plot, characterization, and history of episodes 8 through 13. We have been breaking these podcast episodes to reflect the first couple of cases in the drama, and this will be the last one. As always, I will finish with a quick book comparison since this drama is based off of a book. These episodes and this drama in general is chock full of historical references, and so we will not be going over everything that is portrayed in episodes 8 through 13, but we'll pick out the key highlights. We began this four-part series by highlighting that this drama is focused more on the struggles of power and what it meant to rule. Those challenges are fully displayed in these next upcoming episodes. For the crown prince, or Taizi, it is the sacrifice of his love for political reasons. For his father, the emperor, it is seeing his court officials lording power over him and how he must rule in the face of these types of challenges. What types of gaps does he have to plug? I will say I'm more interested in the emperor's scenes rather than his son's for these next few episodes, especially in episode 12 and 13. The fight between the crown prince, Taizi, and his older brother, Prince Qi, or Qi Wang, continue to brew in the background, with Qi Wang's father-in-law and current chancellor, Li Baizhou, as the uh, primary antagonist of the show. Let's start off with episode 8. In the prior few episodes of the drama, we saw the crown prince, or Taizi, wrapped up in a debacle at the imperial entrance exam that resulted in the resignation of his beloved teacher because the crown prince plotted against his brother, uh, and in order to protect his disciple, Lu Shiyu, this teacher, took the blame and is told to leave his post to return home. The crown prince is understandably upset at the turn of events, but there really isn't much he can do. It was a valuable lesson that he learned. The best thing to have come out of the exam scandal, though, is for the crown prince to have met, quote-unquote, met our female lead, Lu Wenxi. I say, quote-unquote, meet because she had never revealed her countenance to him. In his presence, she always wore a cap that had a veil to cover her face, as is customary at the time. But that does not deter from their attraction towards each other, especially after they work together to help save the crown prince's best friend and cousin, Gu Feng, and as well as her brother, Lu Wenpu, from being implicated in this exam cheating scandal. Both of their hearts are separately fluttering, after being impressed by each other's intellect and capability. 
on Tai's side. He didn't even want to go see the results of the imperial entrance exam with his cousin Gu Fengen, but eagerly agreed after hearing Lu Wenxi would be there. Lu Wenxi was also full of anticipation to see the results firsthand in hopes of meeting her prince, but was cold-heartedly told to stay home by her brother. The crown prince was, of course, annoyed that Lu Wenxi was not there, and also found out that he may be betrothed to the daughter of the minister of justice, whose last name is Zhang. This shocks Taizi, who hurries to get confirmation from his teacher Lu Shiyu, who is also the minister of justice's teacher. It just so happens that on this day, after being rebuffed from seeing the exam results, Lu Wenxi was at Lu Shiyu's. Residence, helping him dry his catalog of books. We will talk about this in our explanation, as it is quite interesting why this scene would appear. Taizi encounters Lu Wenxi while drying books, and behind a curtain, so he once again does not see her face, has another thoughtful and engaging conversation with her. Taizi is over the moon about this girl and is set on marrying her. He knows she is Lu Wenxi, daughter of well-known court official. Lu Ying, who has recently returned to the capital, but has never seen her face. This relationship serves as the next round of conflicts between the two brothers. We have already established that Taizi is interested in Lu Wenxi, but in order to secure power for Qi Wang, or the Prince of Qi, Li Baizhou wants Lu Wenxi to marry Qi Wang as a concubine. This chancellor rather forcefully pushes this message on to Lu Wenxi's father, Lu Ying. Lu Ying is extremely reluctant to have his children used as pawns for political gain, and quite frankly, hates being bullied in this way, and thus asks the crown prince for help. So what happens at the end of episode eight and? Into episode ten, the emperor is having a pleasant evening with Prince Qi or Qi Wang and his mother, the royal consort. In this rather intricate scene, Qi Wang prepares tea for his father using the traditional tea preparation method we actually saw in the story of Ming Lan. It is an elaborate process to prepare a bowl of tea, and Qi Wang does a fine job, as his father even compliments him. At this point, Taizi arrives and also prepares a bowl of tea for his father. The crown prince uses tea that he brought himself, which was procured from outside. One sip of the tea, and the emperor spits it out. It tastes horrible. The emperor quickly dismisses Qi Wang and the royal consort as he suddenly understands that this has become a political matter. Turns out, the tea that the crown prince made is connected to a policy in the drama called Cha Ma Zheng, whereby the government trades official tea with neighboring territories for military horses fit for war. We will talk about this a little bit more、uh, later on. All we have to know right now is that this is an important matter as it directly feeds into the military power of the empire. The crown prince brings forth Lu Ying, who explains that Prince Qi's maternal grandfather has been keeping all of the official tea for himself and selling it for a huge profit, causing waves of outrage by the local citizens. 
And because the tea was swapped out, the tea that is sent to trade for horses are of extremely poor quality or even of not enough weight, which meant that there are no military horses traded for the army. The emperor is furious that such corruption has happened under his nose with ties to stability of his nation's borders and questions why he has not heard a peep. Lu Ying reveals that he had sent numerous documents detailing these events, but they have all been ignored. Who did the ignoring? It all goes back to the Chancellor Li Baizhou. The Emperor summons Li Baizhou as well as the Minister of Treasury or Revenue, Hu Bu Shangshu. But instead of even apologizing or acknowledging the corruption that happened, Li Baizhou just uses the excuse that he'd been too busy these last few weeks or months to have looked at the dockets from Lu Ying. Li Baizhou pushes away any and all responsibility for his involvement in this scandal again. <sighs> Poor Emperor. He knows full well that Li Baizhou is bluffing, but his primary concern is not to dole out punishment. Instead, he has to figure out how to find money to purchase more tea in order to trade for military horses. This is where you see that while the emperor may not be the best father or the fairest father to the crown prince, the emperor's number one priority is ruling the empire and keeping its borders safe. You can see how angry he is at Li Baijiu, but he's like, I don't even have time for this because I have to fix the huge mistake or gap that you left me. Realizing that her father has been caught in a very big corruption scandal, the noble consort or Guifei was uh, intelligent enough to proactively apologize and seek punishment. She even said her father is willing to give up his entire fortune to the treasury in order for this to not go public. Only then does the emperor finally calm down. But once again, it is clear that Xi Wang and Li Baizhou have conspired against the emperor. Throughout the rest of episode 10 and 11, the drama focuses once more on the relationship between Taizi and Lu Wenxi. Because Li Baizhou was dealt such a huge blow, he wants to retaliate against Lu Ying by having his daughter marry Qi Wang as a concubine. The crown prince and Lu Wenxi are both devastated at hearing the emperor has agreed, but ultimately, by grace of Qi Wang's wife, the decree never gets delivered, so the marriage is held off. Key takeaways here are that, geez, Li Baizhou is a cold-hearted father for pushing his daughter to have to share a husband with a concubine, and that the emperor is showing us he's a conflicted character. He ignores the crown prince's pleas that he wants to marry Lu Wenxi, not necessarily because he doesn't want his son to marry for love, but because there are important political implications if this marriage goes through. In any case, the two are separated for the time being. I will also say that um, during this episode, the emperor, when the when his concubine begs for forgiveness, says, I have to ask you to give up my money because at the end of the day, all of the money is, of course, you know, the treasuries and um, the concubine's father just so happened to uh, steal all of it. 
all of this drama or the conflicts between military power um, that we just discussed and also even the marriage between the uh, crown prince and Lu Wenxi culminate into this big event in episode 12 and 13. We saw the two princes, so Taizi and Qi Wang, train for this Sai or archery competition earlier on, and they are now headed to the competition arena along with the emperor. It is a grand affair as it is not simply a competition, but also an opportunity for the emperor to survey his military strength. A rather heavy-set general, General Lu, comes to greet the emperor and the two princes, and it is this general who will aid in the competition later on. On the surface, we have this competition to enjoy, where the sons will vie for the winning prize as the emperor formally declared that the winner will get a grand prize. This clearly stoked a fire for Taizi, whose prize would, of course, be Lu Wenxi. But what I'm more interested in is the emperor's true motive in coming here. I'm telling you, in these episodes, the emperor is definitely the more interesting person. He wants to see one of his closest confidants, Li Ming'an, with the aim of discussing how to remove military power from our dear Li Baizhou in order to weaken this chancellor's power while strengthening support along the empire's borders, as well as pose a check against General Hu, Taizi's uncle, who is currently on the front lines and wields tremendous military power. This conversation came right in time because the chancellor was in cahoots with General Lu. I mean, it's like, of course, this chancellor gets around so much. He he has bribed pretty much everybody. The emperor knows full well that General Lu is working with uh, Li Baizhou, but therefore needs to figure out what is a gift that can be given that cannot be refused so as to force the chancellor to let go of military power. That brings us to the day of the competition. Next day at the archery competition, we see that it is a grand affair. The two brothers are ready to show off their skills and each is eager to win. The emperor and many officials at court are present, including the chancellor and general Lu is in charge of the whole event. Unexpectedly or expectedly, the crown prince gets some nasty surprises from his horse, who had been tampered with. By whom? Easy guess. It's Prince Qi and General Lu. Well, we hear it from Gu Feng, and who saw the whole thing and reported it to Taizi. The whole scene, though, is quite funny to me because Taizi is still too focused on his love life, while his father has a dramatic showdown in front of court for that army of General Lu's. The emperor openly requests for this battalion, which shocks Li Baizhou, but he is quick to retort back as to why the emperor should and, well, should not and cannot take this battalion. It's a fantastic back and forth and showcases why these more seasoned actors also add a lot to the drama. And I really like this scene because you see how bullied the emperor is. The crown prince may be bullied by the emperor here and there, but just how um, much of a bully Li Bai Zhou is to the emperor was shocking. 
the drama turns back onto the field as the competition or combat between the emperor and Li Baizhou becomes manifested in Taizi and Qi Wang. The final competition that will decide which prince is the winner is to shoot a special gourd at the end of the arena. The two princes gallop down the field with Prince Qi purposefully running into Taizi's horse to knock him off course. General Lu, also on horseback, gallops the opposite direction towards the emperor. Despite the crown prince severely wanting to win, he saw a flash of light coming from General Lu and recognized that the general was wearing armor. Wearing armor in front of or in the presence of the emperor is tantamount to treason. For the general to wear this armor meant that he wanted to harm the emperor. The crown prince made a split-second decision and promptly turned his horse around and chased after the general, while Prince Qi, completely oblivious to what happened, galloped towards the gourd. The crown prince, with his bow in hand, screams for the general to stop, who refuses, and thus, left with no choice, Taizi raises his bow to take down the general. However, the direction of his arrow was pointed in the direction of the emperor. This alarms the entire crowd as they, including the emperor, that the crown prince wanted to harm the emperor. The emperor himself demands a bow and arrow to defend himself. In a heart-pounding few moments, we saw three arrows fly towards their targets as each of the three men hit their intended prey. Qi Wang hit the gourd, the crown prince hit General Lu in the back, and the emperor hit the crown prince's horse. General Lu is captured, and he and his troops are all revealed to have worn armor. This again is tantamount to treason. The emperor suddenly realizes that his son, the crown prince, was trying to save him, but took this invaluable opportunity to deal a blow to the chancellor by seamlessly taking command of General Lu's battalion. To placate the chancellor for losing his one military branch of power, the emperor gifts a jade belt to the winner of the archery competition. And who might that be? That is, of course, Qi Wang. In our second podcast episode, or when we first started looking or discussing the episodes of this drama, we highlighted that it is only the crown prince who is allowed to wear a jade belt. And so for the emperor to gift this jade belt to Qi Wang had very important meanings. But I really enjoyed these two episodes and this episode in particular and why we dragged out all of the recap to and here is because this scene showcased very clearly the stances of these three men. Qi Wang cares not so much about his father's safety from a political and, uh, I guess, longevity perspective. Qi Wang only cares about winning. Tides, on the other hand, gave up the ability to win potentially his future with Lu Wenqi in order to protect his father because he reveres his father and 
the title of crown prince, or actually not the title, but the position beheld to him and the responsibilities of his position more than anything else. So that's why he turned around to protect his father, even though he could see that his father was pointing a bow and arrow at him because his father had for a split second thought his son was going to kill him instead. And so that is why the emperor raised his bow and arrow. And in that instance, you could see he was also quite worried that his son would kill him because for a myriad of reasons. I am glad to see that the emperor showed some leniency towards his son because uh, the emperor ultimately only shot the crown prince's horse, not the crown prince himself. That doesn't mean the crown prince didn't get injured because he fell off his horse and hurt his leg or hurt his arm, but that's a different story. The crucial key takeaway from this drama, these couple of scenes that I just want to highlight is that even though you can see the emperor humiliating Tainzi again for giving the jade belt to Qi Wang, this was all part of the emperor's plan. And in my view, the crown prince's position is never in danger. Just because the emperor gave this belt to Qi Wang, which would made uh, which would make them think, ooh, maybe there's an opportunity for Qi Wang to become Taizu. But it was abundantly clear in this scene as to who truly is or has the character of Taizu. And I firmly believe the emperor saw that. It's just a tactic to make um, the chancellor back off. And that is our episode recap for episodes 8 through 13 of Royal Nirvana or He Li Hua Ting. Next up, we will go over some interesting historical uh, references made in these drum episodes that we really enjoyed. All right, the first one is Shai Shu. In episode 8, the Crown Prince and Lu Wenxi have their meet cute when Lu Wenxi is drying books. So what is this? In Chinese, it is called shai shu or drying of the books. Mm, that's the best translation I have. So if someone has another translation, please let me know. The purpose of shai shu is to, of course, preserve books. This is to protect them from bookworms and mold. The days to do so were in the summer because those were the driest days. People didn't just dry books, but also clothes as well. So um, timing doesn't really make too much sense in the drama, because if it's shortly after the Chunwei or the Imperial Entrance Exams, and that happened in the second month of the year, um, that means that it's still pretty early on. Unless there's like bright, bright sunlight, it's not the best time. And what do I mean by that? The practice of Shai Shu has been recorded for thousands of years, dating back to the Eastern Han Dynasty. So think first century AD. It wasn't as big of a deal. And even in the Sui Tang Dynasty, so think like seventh century AD, it wasn't really mentioned as much. It was only really during the Song Dynasty that Shai Shu became more common practice. There are official documents recording the process and practice of doing so. During the Song Dynasty, I believe they had it as 
the seventh day of the seventh month as the official day to try books, which just so happened to be Valentine's Day in Chinese culture. Some other stories around Shai Shu that I would like to share. It actually became an official holiday that occurs on the sixth day of the sixth month on the lunar calendar during the Qing Dynasty. One of the stories involves a trip where the Emperor Kangxi was dressed as a commoner um, on a trip, and this emperor was um, alive during the 17th century. He saw scholar Zhu Yizun sunbathing while also drying his books. Well, it was more like he was fully clothed, but showed his chest and belly. The emperor approached this man to discuss what he was doing. The goal, apparently, really is because there are idioms called man fu jing lun or bao du shi shu, which means a belly full of knowledge. So the guy shows his full belly with his books to show that he is full of knowledge. Afterwards, the emperor agreed to make this sort of an official holiday. The drying of books, that is. I don't think um, showing one's chest or belly is really a holiday. <laughs> um, but that uh, instance wasn't the only time where um, guys showing their bellies happened. That just So the jewel scholar just so happened to run upon a emperor. What is hilarious is now in common vernacular, people still use shai shu as a term to flaunt how intelligent or learned they are. Now, in addition, um, they talk about mei yu qi, or the plum rain season, because um, that is why they wanted to shai shu. So plum rain, or the East Asian rainy season, is what we refer to. According to Wikipedia, it is caused by precipitation along a front known as the Meiyu front for nearly two months during the late spring and early summer. Timing can range from late May to early July. This whole front stretches in East Asia between the um, mainland China, Taiwan, Korea, and Japan, northern Vietnam, and the Russian Far East. Some characteristics include persistent rain, high temperatures, and high humidity. I will say, I've been in southern China when this happens, and my goodness, I got destroyed by mosquitoes. It is absolutely terrible. The season is called as such because this is also when the plums, or meizi, ripen in the area. So meiyu, which would translate to plum rain, is where we get that name, meizi, which is plum. It unfortunately is also a time that due to the humidity also causes a lot of things to grow moldy. So people also call it meiyu. Fa mei means to grow moldy and mei also means mold. So it's a homonym. So mei means mold and mei also means plum. So it's a homonym that means two different things, but very apt um, of a description. This season has been named from ancient times. There are indeed several poems or famous poems from poets dating back to the Tang Dynasty around the 8th century. To this day, people take their clothes, carpets, furniture, and books out to the sun to dry if there is a sunny day during that time to avoid having their possessions grow mold. So Mei Yu and Shai Shu do sort of come hand in hand.
Next up, let's talk about tea. Since this drama is based off of the Song Dynasty, tea and tea brewing were also a big part of the culture. We discussed this in episode 9 and 10 of our recap of the story of Minglan, but let's just reiterate or refresh ourselves of this information here. The art of brewing tea is called dian cha. So how does this work? First up is actually grinding tea into powder. You take the tuan cha, which are compressed tea medallions, and either pound them or grind them into fine powder. And we do see this in episode 9 of the drama. After the tea is ground into the powder, it is placed into a sifter, so only the finest powder is kept. With that done, the tea is placed to the side. Next up is preparing the teacup. You, at first, place a certain amount of hot water in the teacup, which is called a chan. It's more of a bowl than a cup. You swirl it in hot water around to allow for even warmth along the bowl, and you dump the water out and clean the top of the bowl. After this, you place a few teaspoons of the tea powder into the bowl and start adding hot water again. At first, only enough to be at the amount of the tea powder in the bowl, and then you take a tea whisk and start whisking. This step is called kiao gao, and we also do see this in the drama. Whisking starts slowly and in circular motions until the tea texture becomes very creamy and frothy. Next, you continue to add hot water and continue to whisk. After starting off slow, the whisking increases speed quite significantly until the final texture is beige, creamy, and frothy with bubbles. And that is dian cha. It's an extremely important um, cultural reference that I'm really glad is being portrayed more frequently uh, now in Chinese media. It is certainly very different from tea brewing that we see today. Next up is cha ma zheng, or tea and horse policy. One of the biggest political strategies or policies that is discussed in these few episodes includes cha ma zheng, which is the tea and horse policy. It originated during the Tang Dynasty, so again, think 7th, 8th century AD, and was very prominent also during the Song Dynasty, so 11th century. The main policy was essentially trade between the Chinese dynasties or Chinese empires and the kingdoms to the west, especially the Tibetan Plateau. You could think of it similar to the Silk Road, but the focus here wasn't silk. What was traded? The Chinese traded tea in exchange for horses. For this drama, it was war horses. China back then controlled the secrets of tea and needed horses. Horses were used in the cavalry, and that definitely meant whoever had the horses had the upper hand. Which is why in this drama, the emperor plots against the chancellor to gain control of the horses and, of course, the troops. In Chinese history, the policy lasted for over a thousand years and only ended in the 1700s during the reign of Emperor Yongzheng, our favorite emperor from the Empresses in the Palace. All right, last up for today, uh, history-wise, is the Da Sai or the archery competition, specifically Shuliu. So... 
What is it? The archery competition occurred on Duanwujie or on Dragon Boat Festival or the fifth day of the fifth month on the lunar calendar. So before I talk about the actual competition, let me talk about archery. We also briefly discussed this in episode two of the story of Minglan. So Shu is a part of Junzi Liu Yi, or the six arts of a gentleman. The six arts are the basis for a Chinese gentleman's education, and this tradition dates all the way back to the Zhou dynasty over 2,500 years ago. The six arts are Li, Yue, She, Yu, Shu, Shu, or rites, music, archery, chariotry, calligraphy, and mathematics. Specifically for archery, there were five ways to master the skill, which is why it is also called Wu She, or five type archery. Now let's talk about She Liu. Shuliu means to shoot a willow. That's the literal translation. Yes, a willow tree. This is because it had origins from nomadic tribes such as the Xiongnu. Shuliu primarily occurred in the north and was formerly a competition during the Liao dynasty. For the competition, in the center, the bark was cut off to make uh, a target. Competitors would shoot at the target, and whoever was able to topple the tree was the winner. During the Ming Dynasty, it shifted somewhat to the custom uh, that was just to put a bird in a gourd. Competitors would shoot the gourd and try to free the bird, as we saw in the drama. The custom slowly died out by the end of the Qing Dynasty, so the late 19th and early 20th century. There are consistently archery competitions, but it is quite interesting to see this specific tradition portrayed in this drama. Alrighty, that was a lot of history. So I will quickly close out on book differences for today. Since this is our last episode recap, I will give some book slash show spoilers. Up until now, the events still really don't occur in the book. They're mentioned in the book as, oh, this happened before, but aren't shown. For example, the fifth prince tries to become a student of Lu Shiyu, but is denied. And the emperor has his confidant and Li Ming'an. In the book, he's also much more antagonistic, Li Ming'an, that is, is much more protagonistic, sorry, antagonistic to um, Taizi and uh, the ghoul family than it sh- is shown on the show. All right, here's where I'm going to go into book spoilers. The book story begins roughly around episodes 21 through 23. What I mean by that is Lu Wenxi enters into the crown prince's palace as a maid and gets close to the crown prince. That is the beginning of the book. We don't know or we don't find out really what her predicament is or why she is in the palace, what got her to that stage until basically towards the end of the book. It is a beautiful and sad love story between Lu Wenxi and the crown prince. The book is much bleaker than the drama and the drama is already pretty bleak. Lu Wenxi's father and older brother die before the start of the book and all she has is her younger brother and mother. She acts, actually, as a spy, 
not for the Prince of Qi, but for the fifth prince, Xiao Dingkai. He is a much bigger player in the book. In the book, the ending is not good for our two main characters. I will say that it is a sad type of BE, which means bad ending. That is lingo that is used in books in Chinese right now. Um, but I think it's still a pretty interesting read. So I'm glad that I read the book first, several years before actually um, coming to see the drama. And there you have it, episodes 8 to 13 of Royal Nirvana. These episodes focused on the relationship between Taizi and Lu Wenqi, the pressures on the emperor, and quite frankly, the inability of both of his sons to understand their father. If I'm honest, as I've kind of hinted at throughout the podcast, I think Xiao Dingquan or Taizi is a good kid, but man, can he be a little bit more rational? I think he's still a little immature, but I think that's why we have to give Luo Jin, uh, the actor for Xiao Dingquan, a lot of props because even though he was way older than 20 while acting this um, drama, you can see that childish nature there still. And that wraps up our discussion on the drama He Li Hua Ting or Royal Nirvana. If you are interested, please do continue watching. If you have questions about the drama, feel free to reach out to us uh, via Instagram or Twitter, or you can email us at Karen and Kathy at ChasingDramas.com. If you want to continue to watch the show and are in the U.S., it is on Jubao TV with English subtitles. If you want to stream it, just head on over to Jumo, XUMO, and select Royal Nirvana. On TV, you can watch it on Xfinity and Cox Contour. Not only that, Jubao TV just came to an agreement with Sling TV to have its content on that platform. So if you have Sling TV, you are able to watch Jubao TV dramas with English subtitles for free. Please do stay tuned for the next drama that we will chase, which is the fan favorite Yan Xi Gonglue or the story of Yan Xi Palace. We will also aim to bring more content over the summer for everyone to enjoy. Thank you all so much for listening and we will catch you in the next episode.